Welcome to a special edition of the Education Exchange Podcast, a production of Education Next, the country's leading journal of education research and policy. My name is Jim Pizer, former Secretary of Education in Massachusetts and currently an academic visitor at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. And this is a special edition of the podcast because our guest is Education Next senior editor, Dr. Paul Peterson, who is normally your host. And the reason Professor Peterson is on the other side of the virtual table is that he's co-author of a groundbreaking new study on charter school performance, which has just been published by Ednext. Those of you who are regular listeners to this podcast know Paul well, as does anyone who has paid attention to education policy and research over the past several decades. Dr. Peterson is the Henry Lee Shattuck Professor of Government at Harvard University, where he has been on the faculty since 1988. And he also serves as director of the Program on Education Policy and Governance. In addition, Paul is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. His publications and awards are too numerous to mention, so I'll just conclude by stating the obvious that Paul Peterson is one of the country's great public intellectuals in the field of education, and it's a great honor for me personally to substitute for him as his host here on the Education Exchange. So, Paul, it's my privilege to welcome you to your own podcast. Well, uh, Jim, that was much too generous, so thank you very much. Terrific. Now, uh, we're going to be talking about charter schools today, and uh, regular listeners of the podcast or readers of Ednext are well familiar with what they are. But for the uninitiated, uh, charter schools are independently managed public schools, which are publicly funded and free to attend. And they're typically authorized to operate under five-year renewable contracts or charters granted by state uh, education boards, school districts, and sometimes independent or quasi-public agencies. The first charter school law was enacted in Minnesota in 1991, and since that time, 45 more states have adopted charter laws. There are about 8,000 charter schools operating today across those states, which enroll about 3.8 million students, or more than 5% of the total U.S. public school population. In some states, the share of charter schools is much higher, and in some urban districts like Washington, D.C., or Newark, or Denver, the share of charter school students can run from 20 to 50%. In New Orleans, virtually all the public schools are charter schools. And during the pandemic, charter enrollment grew and maybe even grew at a faster pace, even as overall public school enrollment declined. So the bottom line is charter schools play a big and a growing role in American public education. But what do we know about their performance? Previous studies have focused on comparing student achievement and growth in charter schools relative to their local district schools. And these studies have generally shown that charter students outperform their district peers. But there really hasn't been much research on how charter schools compare to one another across state lines in terms of academic achievement until now. So, Paul, before getting into the findings of your study, could you tell us a little bit about why you undertook it uh, in the first place and maybe give us a high level summary of your methodology? Well, uh, Jim, uh, yeah, you uh, gave a very good presentation there of what we know about charter schools. Uh, and uh, the key thing about it is we've never had a study that looks at how well charter school students do on the same test, regardless of the state in which they live. Now, we've heard a lot of claims about one state has better charter schools than another, but all those uh, efforts to um, compare states have not really made use of the National Assessment of Educational Progress, which is the only official test administered by the U.S. government that uh, 
every charter student uh, a sample of uh, of a representative sample of charter schools uh, across the country has taken. And so uh, I, I know that uh, obviously using NAEP data is the first time we've really been able to do that uh, as opposed to looking at state tests. Um, how did you sort of take into account, you know, differences in enrollment and other factors uh, in terms of trying to make the NAEP uh, results apples to apples across state lines? Well, you know, there's uh, some states have a lot of charter schools and uh, They've been around for a long time and others have uh, relatively few charter schools and few charter students and they haven't been around for such a long time. So there are some issues that you have to uh, deal with, but actually the national assessment um, tries, no matter what the size of the state is, they administer roughly the same uh, size sample in that state because they're trying to get a representative sample uh, for for each state and uh, to get a representative sample for each state you've got to have um, you know basically uh, 100,000 to 200,000 observations for all students now we don't have all students we just have the charter school students so we have a subset of that uh, of that sample uh, but nonetheless we have uh, you know, a sizable number of charter school observations in every state that uh, is participating uh, has, a, has, a, has a charter school. Now, of course, there's five states, as you mentioned, that don't have any charter schools. So obviously, we don't have any information for those five states. And then we have some states that um, uh, have begun so recently or have such few charter schools that we just really uh, haven't uh, included them in the analysis. We know what's going on there, but we haven't report, we're not reporting it publicly because we have to have enough observations uh, to, to give a reasonably precise estimate. So, so if, if we couldn't make a precise estimate, we don't include those. And there's about 10 states like that. So we are, we're ending up with 35 states plus the District of Columbia, and so we have 36 different uh, states, uh, if you want to call D.C. a state. Yeah, and you were looking at fourth and eighth grade results, right? Yes, and so that's another limitation of the study. We don't have uh, anything for high schools, and we don't have uh, anything uh, for third grade or uh, fifth, sixth, seventh grade. So yeah. it's just fourth grade and eighth grade. Great. And maybe we can come back to that later because that's another interesting topic about sort of what what are the, some of the next steps that might uh, might be useful to pursue around this research. So uh, what were the major findings? What you, would you learn and how is it sort of maybe distinct or a little different from some of the other studies that have been done? Well, you know, the most surprising uh, finding, I guess, is that Alaska came out first in our rankings, and I don't think there was anybody who expected that. Um, we didn't expect that. Now, uh, Jim, I know that you're very proud that Massachusetts came in third, or essentially uh, tied with uh, Colorado for uh, second place. Well, I'd feel better if we were first place, but you're right. I'm, I'm okay with, with tied for second or third, either one. 
Yeah. So, and I, I said, well, maybe there's something wrong with the uh, Alaska results, but the Alaska results, uh, they're clearly ahead of uh, Massachusetts. It's, it's not, it's not a close call. They're clearly ahead and they're clearly ahead of Colorado. And then you also have in the top rankings there, uh, New Jersey and uh, New York and, uh, and Oklahoma, surprisingly, that's another big surprise that Oklahoma comes out as, as well as it does. So, um, so we we have all the states ranked there, and um, you know it's a matter of uh, you know what do you want to conclude from from that. One of the conclusions I reached is that the best charter schools are north of the Mason-Dixon line and touching the Atlantic Ocean, because uh, we generally find that, with the exception of Connecticut, uh, all the states in the in the Northeast there uh, are are doing pretty well. Um, and and the second interesting thing is that the South is doing um, not badly, given you know, historically we always think of the South as ha as lagging behind because before the Civil War they didn't really have a well-developed education system and and uh, the African American slave population was not being educated at all or hardly at all, and so it, they've been in. And then after the Civil War, you had this really destruction of the Southern economy. So it took a long time for the South to recover from, from the war. And so, you know, it's been a slow progress in the South. Uh, but the South has, been, has embraced alternative uh, forms of education more than other parts of the country. Uh, and they have uh, introduced a lot of reform movements. And so, the South has been really emphasizing education as a way of bringing back, bringing the two racial groups in our society closer together. So they're emphasizing we've got to educate everybody, both black and white, and uh, and the charter schools may be a way of doing that. And so their charter schools actually are above average, generally speaking. There's a couple states that are exceptions, but the southern states come in above average. And then the third interesting thing is uh, how low California is on. on the, you wouldn't think that California would be so, would score so low, Oregon along with it, and, and also the Midwestern states are, tend to be below average. So, um, so there's some unusual findings there. And, and when you, you to, just to remind people, when you say, you know, there's some Southern states where their charter schools are above average, they're above average not compared to their local public schools, but compared to the national data on charter school performance. So they're outperforming a lot of other states that are higher income or, you know, a little bit further north. Right. And, and I should mention that all of these comparisons are, are made after we adjust for family background. So we're taking into account as best we can the education of the parents, the uh, income of the family, the, um, the, the ethnic composition of the uh, sample, and uh, the gender, and um, my, whether they're in special education or not. And we don't include anybody who's uh, being educated virtually. So these are only people who are in brick and mortar schools. And in, in terms of the Northeast, and again, this, this is more speculative probably than anything else, but um, you think there's a possibility that, uh, relatively speaking, there are more urban or proportionally maybe more urban charter schools 
uh, or enrollment is higher in urban charter schools in the Northeast than maybe in, in other places. And therefore the mix of urban versus suburban or non-urban uh, is, is skewed a little bit in the Northeast, which might, um, you know, and again, this is again speculative, but, but might suggest that um, especially around uh, some of the um, uh, cities where there are significant numbers of charter management organizations, that there just might be a, a more highly concentrated um, selection of high quality schools? Well, there may be a concentration of high quality schools in the Northeast, but we do control for the uh, whether the student is in a, a urban or suburban or rural uh, school. So we've controlled for that. But uh, nonetheless, I, I think there's something to what you say there, because a lot of the students that we're observing uh, in the Northeast are in um, are in urban schools. And uh, so our urban ranking is very similar to our uh, overall ranking. So the two ranking, our rural ranking is a little bit different. There's uh -huh. some variation, some departure from the ranking I just gave you because we do rankings of subgroups too. So we have rankings of black students and white students and Hispanic students and rural students and um, uh, urban students. Actually, we combine suburban and rural all together because uh, we don't have enough observations unless we do that. So we break it up between urban and all the rest. So, um, and, and we find that generally speaking, the overall ranking is highly correlated with urban, with black, with low income, uh, and you get a somewhat different ranking for uh, the Hispanic population, but it isn't that much different. And you know, with respect to those subgroups, the, the data does seem to show that there are pretty significant differences or at least a pretty wide range in terms of the performance gaps that are observed within the charter school sector um, on the basis of race and ethnicity. Any uh, thoughts for you know, why that might be and what may be behind those numbers? Well, you know, we find the same thing that everybody else finds, that uh, there's large ethnic disparities in the United States between the performance of uh, white Americans and that of African Americans and uh, Hispanic Americans. So um, this is pretty, this is not at all surprising um, that, uh, that that's, uh, that, you know, what, what others have found with respect to student performance in general. We know that Student performance is very much influenced by the family background and the resources of the family. The schools do make a difference, but they make a difference within a context where, you know, your early childhood experiences and uh, the resources you have uh, at home are really extraordinarily important for how well you're going to be doing in school. And do you think uh, the the gap or the, the the differences that you've been able to measure in the charter sector all that different from uh, what's going on in the public schools uh, or the broader district schools or is it pretty much the same and and fairly consistent from state to state well you know we were able to look at that because there's a very good study at uh, that's been done by the urban institute uh, and it's up on uh, and available. You can find it on the Urban Institute website. And uh, they do exactly the same thing we do for all students in the state. So they have um, 
they have a ranking for all students in the state on the NAEP adjusted for the same background characteristics that we control for because, and they do that because they have exactly the same data that we have. So we're, we're, we're using exactly the same data. They do their analysis for all students within the state and we do this analysis just for the charter students. So you can do a comparison of what the Urban Institute did with what we did and see our charter school is simply a reflection of the schools, public schools within a state. And uh, the answer is no, There's a, there is a correlation, but it's, it's a 0.3 correlation, which you know, you'd like, if you, if you have 0 0.7, 0 0.8 correlation, you say, well, okay, there's a very strong relationship there, but if it's a 0.3 one, you, just, you have to say, well, there's a big difference between what's going on in the charter schools. So for example, Oklahoma looks great on, on our scale because their, their charter schools seem to be doing very well. And of course, we've talked about Alaska where the charter schools seem to do very well. But if you look at how all the public schools in Oklahoma and Alaska are doing, they, they don't look so good. They're much further down the list. So do you have some hypotheses for why some uh, charter schools in some states seem to do better than others and, and in, in particular relative to their, uh, to their local school districts? Um, you know, in other words, are there some variables or factors that might explain some of the state level differences in student performance that you're seeing? Well, the, the one uh, thing that uh, we have, maybe there's two things that we've noticed uh, and, and one of them is that if the state is the authorizer, like the State Board of Education or the statewide agency is uh, like the, um, the Department of Education in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, if that's the authorizing agency, um, the students seem to be doing better at, at those charter schools. And now that's as compared to if they're being authorized by a local school district or by a university or by the mayor's office or, or some other agency. Now, I'm sure you are going to think this is a great finding, Jim, because Massachusetts <laughs> all of its charter schools uh, through the State Department of Education. And we actually uh, quite, I didn't expect to find this, but it, it sounds like you're doing the right thing here in Massachusetts. So, I mean, this is, this is a really interesting and um, in some, some ways controversial point because I think one of the um, best practices, if that's the right word, that organizations like the National Charter School, uh, the Association of National, uh, uh, or the National Association of Charter School Authorizers, or NAXA, uh, has often um, supported is having multiple authorizers within a state in order to ensure that uh, a single authorizer doesn't just, you know, either go off the rails and start uh, doing bad a bad job of chartering, or just simply shut the whole thing down uh, administratively. Um, and having multiple authorizers at least gives schools uh, and potential school founders an opportunity for another path if one is shut off to them. Um, but this would suggest that that, you know, at a minimum, uh, may have some offsetting costs associated with it in terms of student performance. Well, the way I think of it is the State Department of Education has been overseeing local schools uh, and local school districts for 100 years or more. There, that's, a, that's a role that they feel comfortable doing. That's, 
you know, they've, they've built up the uh, infrastructure to do that kind of thing. So to ask them to do that for charter schools is somewhat different. It's not, it's a different task, but it's, it's a related task. Now, if you ask uh, a university to do this, you say, okay, you know, uh, University of, uh, of uh, Wisconsin at Milwaukee, we want you to uh, authorize charter schools. Well, um, they've never done anything like that before. So why would you expect them to be better at that than an agency that's been doing it for a long period of time? And we actually do find that universities, <laughs> I hate to say this being at a university, but they're not good at managing things, it looks like. You know, they at least they aren't very good at managing K-12 education. They may be just fine for higher education, but because they've been doing that. But this is a new task being assigned to a university that it doesn't, you know, if you think about it, it's, it's not within their, their um, wheelhouse. And it's, it's not surprising the, the finding that school districts um, who are authorizers don't necessarily um, uh, produce the, the highest performing schools since districts and charters tend to be sort of at odds with one another in most places. And uh, there's probably a tendency among school districts who are authorizers to charter schools that are sort of targeted towards particularly high need populations uh, in sort of niche parts of the, uh, of the educational system rather than uh, sort of a broader cross-section of uh, serving a broader cross-section of students. So that's, again, I don't think that's, that part is all that surprising, but uh, I think this is an important finding. Um, are there other variables, uh, you know, sort of state level structural or systemic variables that you think either this research has um, sort of shed light on in terms of their impact on student performance or that uh, questions have been raised that would be worthy of further uh, exploration or research? Well, certainly uh, the finding that uh, schools that are in a nonprofit charter school network uh, outperform uh, other charters is, is interesting. There's about 20% of all charter schools are in, are in these networks, <clears throat> which are you know, three or more uh, charter schools. We define that in the same way the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools does it. We take their, their information and they, uh, they call a network anything that has three charter schools. And following that definition, we, we find uh, that they, the students in those schools are doing better than the ones who are in the freestanding, or I call them the moms and pops, because they're, every entrepreneur is starting up a new school and, and doing the best they can with it. And the for-profits, the, the, the companies that are are uh, offering this uh, at a basis where they think they can um, they can make a profit at least over the long run, and uh, neither one of that neither one of those uh, does as well as uh, as as those nonprofit uh, for charter schools. So, just exactly why um, I would say probably uh, it's partly because it's easier for them to expand if they have actually developed a good product. Uh, they're going to get more resources from the philanthropic community. They're going to get more students to enroll. It's going to be easy for them to expand. So it may be a little bit that this expansion is a product of the fact that they were, they developed as good schools. So I think basically that what I learned from that is we should 
facilitate uh, these networks and build on build on strength. Now, I, I noticed that in the uh, in the findings uh, that are summarized in the Ednext article, uh, there were some variables that you found really didn't seem to have much of an impact. So um, it didn't seem to matter whether states had a lot of charter schools or a higher percentage of charter school students. Didn't seem to matter um, in terms of uh, whether uh, the state permitted collective bargaining in charter schools or the level of per pupil funding. Um, any uh, any other uh, sort of observations maybe about those things that didn't seem to matter? Yeah, no, it's sort of because uh, there's a big debate out there as to uh, um, whether or not you should, um, you know, let a lot of um, charter, charter schools uh, 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 um, appear on the scene and, and, and let them grow. And if they don't make it, they don't make it. And, and then other people say, no, you got to be very careful before you authorize a charter school. But we don't really find that it makes too much difference if there's a, a lot of charter schools in a state or just a few. So um, I think that was a, a surprising finding too, that we don't see a significant difference among the states in that regard. And we didn't see much difference in fin funding. Some charter schools are well-funded and some are, are, are starving. Uh, and, but in terms of student performance, we didn't see that money made that much difference. Of course. Other studies have found that money doesn't make much difference when you do comparisons across state lines. So that's probably not such a surprising finding, but you know, given the rhetoric out there, uh, it is. Yeah. Now, uh, we mentioned earlier that uh, you're using fourth and eighth grade NAEP results. Uh, and so we, there's no high school data. And so high schools are not really part of this, but obviously high schools are a, a big part of the charter sector and you know, just a big part of the education system generally. Any thoughts for how we might sort of think about further uh, research or studies that might somehow capture the high school uh, part of the equation. Yeah, there is, you know, there is a high school test yeah. uh, that is administered by NAEP. So in principle, we could have looked at the high school, but the number of observations we have uh, per state is uh, much, much less for the high schools than for the fourth and eighth graders. Now, what we've done here in this analysis is we've combined all the results over an 11-year period from 2009 to 2019, because we've got to have an 11-year period in order to get enough observations uh, in 36 states. If we, if we had done the same thing for the high schools, we would have had to have dropped you know, maybe half of our states. So we, we would have had a ranking, but it would have been, you know, for maybe yeah. less than 20 states. And so we just thought that's, you know, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, over time, there's going to, I think we're getting more high schools and we're getting more students and maybe we'll be able to do that. So I can see uh, downstream that there's a possibility of doing this for the high schools. But uh, at this point, it seemed uh, prudent not to get into uh, a context where your quality of your data just wasn't as good. And given that you had to use basically 10 years of data in order to have enough observations, does that mean there's sort of limitations to how often you can do these studies to track progress or change over time? Well, I don't think it makes much sense to go out and, and do it uh, on the basis of uh, the next round of NAEP uh, yeah. that come in because you're not going to have enough observations 
in most of the states. You might, the District of Columbia, which uh, has a lot of charter schools and a lot of students uh, in the sample, uh, you probably could do it for a few places like that. So um, I won't say it can't be done for specific places, but to get an overall uh, ranking across the country, I think you're going to have to wait. You know, you're going to have to wait, you know, five, five to ten years before you're going to be able to do this again. So uh, that's a limitation on what we're doing here. And um, and uh, I think the best way to look at the contribution here is it sums up what the charter school movement has produced prior to the pandemic. And, uh, and then it'll be up to uh, future work to assess whether or not that is sustained uh, after the pandemic. So that's actually a great segue maybe into a final question. What do you think the sort of next steps ought to be uh, sort of taking advantage of this research in order to uh, explore uh, you know, both its findings as well as the questions it raises? Well, I think there's more that can be done, uh, for example, uh, on types of charter schools. We have discovered that if a, if a charter school is specialized, uh, that is to say it's aimed at a particular population or it has a particular curriculum or a particular pedagogy, it's actually uh, doing better than if it says uh, that it's just serving all students. Now, the way we do this is we're relying on the work of uh, uh, some scholars associated with the National Assessment of, of the, uh, the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools. They have they have looked at the, every website of every charter school in the United States, and they have classified every charter school according to whether or not it has a specialized curriculum, specialized pedagogy, et cetera. So we, um, we're just using that extraordinarily interesting set of information. And with their permission, we uh, used it to see whether or not specialization was better or worse. And because uh, you, you might have concluded that, no, they're, they're, they're off in some you know, crazy land. Uh, but actually, we find they're doing better. They do better than the charter schools that say, well, we're just serving everybody. And so I think that um, that's something to be dug into more uh, in depth. And I think the data are there to do some of that. So I think that's one next step. And by the way, I think that's there may be some correlation or relationship between uh, those kinds of schools and the kinds of authorizers that are um, um, sort of uh, allowing them to, uh, to to open and operate because uh, many authorizers have certain um, uh, preferences, um, uh, as well as certain criteria that they use, which may either screen out some of those uh, schools or actually encourage them. So yeah, I think that, that would certainly be a fruitful area for, for further research. Um, I think we're at our time. Uh, Paul, I want to thank you for coming to your own podcast uh, and participating as a guest. Um, I'd be happy to host again as long as you're the guest anytime, but otherwise I'm uh, more than happy to turn the, the microphone back over to you for the, next, uh, for the next episode. So thank you very much for coming. I really appreciate it. And thanks for the opportunity. Well, Jim, thank you for hosting.